Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wonk, the Policy Pod. My name is Ricky Soto, one of your hosts today, and uh, I'm glad to be joined with Noah Redlick. Do you want to say hi, Noah? Hello, everyone. Uh, Noah Zunker as well. Hi, y'all. It's great to be here. And uh, Katie Okumu. Hey, everyone. Happy Easter. So today we're going to be talking about um, foreign policy. It's going to be a discussion um, about the history of like post-Cold uh, War foreign policy in the United States, as well as... Um, the defense spending or the level of defense spending in the United States and uh, foreign policy decisions, um, foreign policy decisions being made now, and then finally uh, foreign policy as it relates to the Democratic Party's platform and what we stand for as a party. But um, I think we're gonna we're gonna preface this with some history, so uh, I'll just jump right into it. But basically, after the Cold War ended. Um, the United States was left as the lone superpower, so to speak, in the world, uh, military superpower. And um, around that time, there was the Gulf War, um, which for those of you who do not know, uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein uh, invaded Kuwait, and the U.S. uh, responded militarily by pushing them out. And following that that first uh, war in Iraq, or the Gulf War, as it's more commonly referred to, um, the President Bush at the time actually had like a 92% approval rating. It was insane, uh, which is even more hilarious. But like the fact that he like lost later, which is just a beautiful irony. But um, so, and then also in the 90s there was the Rwandan genocide, which um, the U.S. played some role in, I believe. Uh, so, well, so yeah. Including the Rwandan genocide and like foreign policy before 9/11, at post Cold War, uh, foreign policy would just to point out that like the United States and the global community didn't do anything in the Rwandan genocide. Like yeah. that occurred, and then we were all like, "Oh no, a genocide had happened," and we didn't. Like we all saw it happen, and yeah. uh, so like that, including it here would be just to say that like the United States, even after the Cold War, had a poor record of just being helpful in the world. Well, yeah, but I think it's in stark contrast to uh, a response to Yugoslavia mm-hmm. and the, and the uh, genocides going on there where the U- or NATO actually did intervene and uh, where we, I guess, our, our omission of, of, of going and played a, uh, a role in the Rwandan genocide in that we didn't uh, stop it. You know, and those were not minor events, but uh, they pale in comparison to uh, the response by the United States uh, after uh, 9-11, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think we should, like... Give a little history to that? Well, give a little history to that, but, I mean, it's still, like, I think it's like 40% of the United States or something still thinks that uh, Saddam Hussein <clears throat> caused 9-11, which is, <laughs> like, a, a gross um, misunderstanding of, like, what is going on conceptually. So do you want to... Uh, yeah, I can go through a little bit of just kind of history of like how we got to that point and then what we did afterwards. Right? Also, like Afghanistan. I yeah, think, I think. Yeah, so yeah. just a history of Afghanistan. Like against Afghanistan, it was a uh, it was invaded in 1978 by the Soviet Union. There was yeah. their Vietnam was in Afghanistan. They pulled out eventually, and there was a civil war that occurred uh, in Afghanistan. Eventually, the Taliban took over, and that was in 1996. During that period from 1996. To 2001, uh, Al Qaeda was for well, 
Al Qaeda based itself in Afghanistan and was allowed by the Taliban government to do it. To do it. I, I think. I think it's work. important though. Like we also need to note the Mujahideen. Um, yeah. Was funded by the CIA. Yeah, and so that's <laughs> so, that's also like, an important thing. They're like, yeah, during the and the same way that the Soviet Union funded the Viet Cong in Vietnam, yeah. we were like, ah, we can do the same thing to you, and so we funded the Mujahideen, which would become the Taliban and Al Qaeda and those same fighters. Like we funded Osama bin Laden f- to fight the Soviet Union, yeah. and they later became the and, Taliban and Al Qaeda, yeah. and so they're hanging out in Afghanistan until. 2001 they plan and execute the terror attacks in 9-11 and then we as a response go in invade afghanistan uh depose the taliban government set up a new government um and i mean that's have been based there since trying to fight the war on terror i think also talking about um like to understand like the taliban is still an entity and still controls significant amounts of the country Mm -hmm. it's it's not al-qaeda it's it's a separate um entity so to speak but it is uh, you know uh, a muslim fundamentalist uh government it's a, it, it considers itself you know is, is an islamic country but uh incredibly strict legal system uh following a very strict interpretation of sharia uh including uh, i don't think you could have music or pictures um their their interpretation is very strict yeah they're their idea of Afghanistan is they still believe that they're in control of Afghanistan. They're the rightful rulers of Afghanistan. They have a very strict Sharia law as their kind of basis for Afghanistan, uh, for Afghanistan law. It's also important to understand is one that uh, they're not Al Qaeda, as you said, and then also like Saddam Hussein has nothing to do with them. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, and so, like, just to clear up any misconceptions that you would have about yeah. Afghanistan and like. 9-11 and all that is like this was our involvement in Afghanistan had nothing to do with Iraq which we can now move on to it's like yeah it, it's commonly lumped in just mm-hmm. because there are two regions in the Middle East and we ended up fighting Iraq or uh, in Iraq um, Al-Qaeda but that was like incidental right so mm-hmm. was, I mean like our involvement so just for context the, our involvement of it in Iraq was uh at the behest of uh, of the Bush administration, basically there was a claim that uh, weapons of mass destruction were being constructed in uh, Iraq by um, Saddam Hussein and was used as a causus belli uh, to go into Iraq. The uh, United States went to the United Nations, uh, asked you know had a vote on whether this is a you know a just war, basically permission to enter. Um, Iraq, it got voted down <laughs> because the evidence was spotty. And actually, to connect it to now, John Bolton was um, was a key person in covering up and selecting evidence, you know, selectively choosing evidence that would support his case that there were weapons of mass destruction being built in Iraq, um, and was someone who was a main justifier for the civil war or uh, for, for us going into uh, Iraq and then consequentially we invaded deposed Saddam Hussein pretty quickly um but then we had to deal with the aftermath and not only is it bad in that we just deposed like a pr- relatively stable uh regime that um had control over a country pretty well 
um, brutal and anti-democratic, but stable. Um, we also had uh, not uh, we we had to address the sectarian conflict, which kind of existed there already, and that Saddam Hussein was Sunni, and um, we put and there's a Shia majority in Iraq, just like there is in Iran, just not as as large. Um, so there's a sectarian uh, conflict now in where um, Sunni actors, which used to be the majority or uh, control power in the country, um, are now threatened by the Shia government, which is also has interesting ties to Iran. So um, it really is a quagmire. We left, you know, um, ample room for Al Qaeda to expand. Um, and gain support. In- I think a big part of like what went wrong with that is like yeah. we didn't when we took out the Saddam Hussein government. We didn't we didn't just take out Saddam Hussein. We took out anyone who was like even remotely important within that government. And then we just decided to make a new government with people who were inexperienced, people who didn't really it's have the same in- governing ex- capacity. And then we also decided to like. It's a lack of legitimacy, we, too. We, yeah, was, we built a government that wasn't going to do well, and then we tried to nation-build. Yeah, it wasn't an inclusive government, and so you, the big problem was is that in this new Shia government, the Sunnis were left out, and that just left this vacuum where ISIS, which is a, a Sunni is extremist group, could appeal to these these Sunnis that are being left out of the government. So the problem was we, we took down a government that, that was – Stable, and then we replaced it with a government that was not representative, and that led to these Sunnis uh, disaffecting and joining uh, ISIS. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I also want to point out a few, a few other repercussions, um, the economic repercussions, um, um, the fact that the war um, exasperate, exasperated the U.S. Fi- uh, fiscal situation. Um, and then I also I, I also think um, the war contributed to the U.S.'s alienation from um, 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 from the world. Um, mm-hmm. It made it more difficult for the United States to um, galvanize national interest um, and galvanize our national partners. Um, no, yeah, I mean, so yeah, the U.S. credibility um, um, took a hit. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's it's reflected in the way that we approached this war from the beginning, right? In the first Gulf War, we appealed to the United Nations and said. Iraq cannot invade Kuwait. And then we had this like dip- diplomatic kind of principle that we were going to appeal to. And the United Nations was okay with that. And they went along with this. And the second Iraq war, uh, this was this was not the case at all. We went to the United Nations and uh, asked for help in a war that we had made up ourselves. And it, it's the also- result of that was like the world community understood that we weren't interested in having just wars anymore. I mean, so... And and the narrative changed after everyone realized there was no weapons of mass destruction to this neocon idea that in order, if you go, um, I I heard an interesting piece um, from Matthew Iglesias this this week um, because they're covering John Bolton, but referencing Bush's uh, second inaugural address and how Bush outlined like a a, a very neoconish, neoconservative, that's neoconservative. neocon worldview in that for the U.S.'s preservation and national security, it's not even enough to, like, defend the homeland and, like, vet or, uh, like, in order for the U.S. to have a a strong national security, other, like, everyone else needs to be, like, thriving free market democracies. Um, 
it, uh, this was essentially the, the, the vein or the argument, which is a big claim, um, the argument that Bush was making, and this was what it took, like, oh, like, yeah, sure, there weren't any weapons of mass destruction, but this is, we're bringing freedom to the people of Iraq, which, um, you know, for all the justifications of the, you know, it was a very incredibly oppressive government under Saddam Hussein, but, I mean, according to, like, an MIT estimate, around 650,000 people died, um, just in the period from... Uh, to or from the invasion to 2006, and you know there there are varying estimates. Um, I've seen as low as a uh, hundred thousand. I've seen it upwards of a million. But I think this was a good middle ground, and also from a trusted source. But um, I mean, to say that you're deposing a brutal dictator and then caused that much loss of life is is, I mean, it's galling. Mm-hmm. I think it's I mean I think it's a really important lesson though because you hear the talk of human rights you continually use in interventions since Iraq to justify uh, military action against uh, foreign governments. We saw that same thing happen in Libya um, and in the first few years of Obama's term and so I think that it's an important lesson to take that when people talk about human rights as a justification it's something to be more skeptical of than people were during bush yeah not even because of the intention maybe but because of the actual consequences of said actions um unintended consequences yeah unintended consequences um i think since so since iraq we've had uh, uh so the arab spring happened in which you know there were so, like so tunisia's now a democracy um so is uh so is egypt um I, I would push back on that. But well, yeah, I mean, so, so Egypt has Springs starts in Tunisia. It spreads throughout the Middle East. Stops at the door of the the uh, oil kingdoms because they're extremely repressive. But it spreads from Tunisia, goes to the Middle East, yeah, des- destabilizes Syria, and then results in a civil war there. So is it a CC now? Is that who controls Egypt? Yeah, because uh, like, he uh, he's a new dictator. <laughs> he, yeah, he uh, he had a coup after. Uh, is it? It was Mubarak, and then well, it was Mubarak, and then and they then, went to a democracy, and then yeah, a, a democracy under the Mother the, Brotherhood, yeah, and the then Muslim that was yeah. met with uh, heavy protests like two years later, and then Al Sisi did a coup of that government, and uh, is now basically Mubarak, and like a you mean Al Sisi? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Al Sisi is basically a new Mubarak with uh, a diplomatic or a a democratic stamp on his name. Yeah. Um. For what, yeah, what we can call that. Um, so, yeah, the, the Arab Spring happened, destabilized a lot of, um, like, for example, Syria. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about because Syria, before the use of chemical weapons also, was, I don't want to say a shining star, <laughs> like, in, in the Middle East, but it was, it was a functioning government, um, had a lot of minority protections. So uh, Bashar al-Assad and the al-Assad, fl- um, al-Assad family, is, uh, they're Alawite. Uh, Muslim, which is a it's a minority sect, somewhat similar to Twelver um, Shia Islam, and uh, so they were guaranteeing not only the rights of the Alawites but uh, of Christians in the area, as well as uh, other minorities. Even though the the country, the population is overwhelmingly Sunni, um, and, and I think that's also something we, when we're talking about this, have to be. Um, cognizant of is like a lot of while there are examples of like Tunisia which is essentially transitioned into a more or less functioning democracy um, a lot of the pushes for democracy were kind of uh, tyranny of the majority right like 
Um, this is kind of what you saw in Egypt, where you have pushes for democracy, but said pushes would often lead to the um, disenfranchisement of minority communities within. I mean, this is also what you have in in uh, Iraq, right? I mean, you have a, a Shia, n- newly empowered Shia majority who is um, in sectarian conflict with the Sunni minority, as well as the Kurds, but um, which is a whole nother thing. But I mean, so since... Since the Arab Spring, we, we still have this conflict in Syria where we have, I guess, what, specialists on the ground? I mean, we have troops, but, like, not, like, your average, like, no, U.S. Yeah, so military we don't have, like, a, It'd be like we'd have a ground force there of, like, special forces. And I, I, assume, I mean, they're not going to release those. Yeah, we don't know. We, we don't know, we don't know who what they have, is, but we, <laughs> we have troops who are either assisting the uh, the Kurdish yeah, the fighters Kurd- there uh combating the last remaining bits of ISIS uh, ISIS in there. Um, and that's where we would have troops, but to know where we have troops is difficult just because. Yeah. You can also see, like, it's a good example of, like, bureaucratic, like, just, like, just a, a no bureaucratic communication at all in that, like, you literally have groups that might be funded by the Department of Defense that are, like, fighting groups that are, like, funded by the CIA. Yeah. I mean, the, the, <laughs> so, like, it's just, like, warring like periods like every man for himself stuff it's kind of crazy really really broken down into like a lot of different factions where you'd have the government you still have isis out there in like small pockets um you have the Kurd- what's the new there's a new name for the kurdish uh oh, movement or um, Kur- kurdish state they have a they have a name they renamed now. it yeah um but anyways they like that they have the kurds in the north and then you also have freedom fighters still in several cities uh, in the south and more in the west but like that within uh syria it's 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 an absolute uh, mess of different factions that are just difficult to know the full kind of go around of them yeah no i agree um i guess that 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 kind of i mean and then the other thing is israel which we haven't even talked about which <laughs> there, i mean there's there's um a long standing there's a long standing rivalry not rivalry like absolute hatred between Iran and Israel and then Iran and Saudi Arabia who see each other as like warring theocratic powers right where you have and they I mean they've created a cold war within within the Middle East and you can see yeah. that in Yemen right it's like Saudi Arabia and and Iran aren't fighting each other in Yemen but like the people that they support are fighting each other in Yemen and that's that's what a lot of the Middle East has kind of become is just like large kind of like proxy conflicts between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think it's important that like in Yemen, like sure the Iranians are um, funding uh, the Houthi rebels, but Mm -hmm. like nowhere near the amount that the Saudi Arabia is spending every day no, Saudi Arabia on is the war. It's like over like 200 dollars Very committed to People don't talk about this, but we're spending our money on this Yeah, we're war. spending money on we're this war. We're actively funding Saudi Arabia and contributing in doing that to what's been called the greatest humani- modern humanitarian yeah. crisis in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And we continue to send our arms to the Saudis. Even as we talk about human rights abroad <laughs> and promoting democracy, mm-hmm. we continue to, to give money to arguably the most repressive regime yeah. in the Middle East. Uh, and we've had votes in Congress to defund this, and narrowly uh, funding has continued uh, to go through. And we 
So we are sending our money now and our weapons to the Saudis who continue to fight this proxy war against Iran in yeah. Yemen. I I think like there's like I don't, I don't I think people also underestimate how big this is. Like it's cholera essentially doesn't exist anywhere else in like the world. It's there there might be small cholera outbreaks, but it's generally been eradicated um, thanks to the work of um, uh, what do you call it? It's the, the, the well, there's there, no no no. You can't vaccinate it, but there's a a packet essentially of, of sugar of glucose and salt that you would just put in water, and um, it it helps uh, you get over cholera. You know, we, we we figured this out not too long ago, but the problem is um, there is a huge cholera outbreak in Yemen. Um, I, b- I believe it's millions of people have died, um, if if I'm correct. And the last time they could actually get a count was like 2016, um, which is also like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't even get an accurate count anymore on who's died, how many people have died. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia. It's funny they they say like they're the largest um, the largest donor of humanitarian aid to Yemen, but <laughs> but really what it is is they're giving cuz so they they they're propping up a, a, a like a a shadow sunni government in the area um which had control before the houthi rebels took over and um they're only funding areas which are under the control of the shadow government they're only giving humanitarian aid to to these areas everywhere else is basically um destitute um dying of, of hunger uh starvation you know there's blockades there's um you can't get you know trade is not going in and out of this of uh, of uh, Yemen and then humanitarian forces aren't allowed in Yemen so it, it's a it's a um, a real crisis and the U.S. is uh, culpable both under the Obama administration and um, this, the current administration which arguably has gotten much closer to Saudi Arabia actually I think this might be the the closest we've been to Saudi Arabia in uh, decades. Um, I mean, yeah, one of his, one of the president's first visits was to go to Saudi Arabia and like confirm that our relationship within the Middle East is like very much Saudi first. And uh, yeah, that that was a com- like Israel that first. that alone that <laughs> that alone second. was like a just like we're right here for whatever Saudi Arabia needs, and that's part of the reason why we give funding for the Saudi government to go into Yemen. Like we. We uh, we see as their strategic. It's not just funding. It's it's funding. Yeah, funding it's, it's military. It's it's strategic support. And... It's weapons deals. Mm-hmm. So it, mm-hmm. it's yeah, a, it's a um, it's a nearly one hundred and ten billion dollar arms deal. Yeah. Um, with the military. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all all weapons deals need to be approved by Congress. So that are foreign weapons deals. So all these weapons deals are getting rubber stamped by our representatives and our senators, and they're saying, "Yep, that's fine." Let him. And I have to say, it really bothers me when some of the, the biggest promoters of, of this idealistic American foreign policy, people who claim that we're the leaders of the free world and we, we have a moral responsibility to, to promote democracy ab- abroad, the John McCain's and Lindsey Graham's. <laughs> it's those very people that are voting in the Senate to continue this Yemen, this policy towards Yemen where we're arming an incredibly repressive regime. So I just. It's hard for me to take those people seriously when they when they talk about democracy abroad and yet continue to vote to give arms to the Saudis. Yeah, no, I, and we do that with many other governments too. Though um, 
you know, not everyone gets American arms, but our allies do, um, certainly. And again, it goes through Congress. Um, there's also a significant amount of lobbying behind it because, you know, the mil- uh, the uh, military-industrial complex will throw money behind it. They'll uh, politically engineer, which is they'll strategically place um, factories, offices, um, you know, places where they can actually hire employees in specific districts like across the country to get to maximize support for um, weapons deals um, it's really one of the most blatant um, blatant displays of corruption and that you'll literally have uh, you know it's not like you just have these like you do have these pro-military figures right like a John McCain or a Lindsey Graham that are just will fund anything but you also have it's particularly particularly in the house like even in the Senate though like Washington and Missouri, um, their senators will fight tooth and nail for Boeing because Boeing's based out of their state. But you won't see them go to bat for Northrop Grumman um, because there's no Northrop Grumman lobbyists in their state because they don't have factories in their state because they aren't providing jobs in their state. So it's very much, it's clearly like there's clearly a link between industry and specific corporations and and senators and uh, members of Congress. But I think with that, we'll take a short break and then we'll get into the opinion polling um, in the broader public on uh, foreign policy issues and then maybe flesh out the debate on where we fall as individuals in the Democratic Party on uh, said issues. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Um, thanks for letting us take a break. Uh, so right now we're going to jump into um, kind of where the Democratic Party is in terms of opinion on a broad range of foreign policy issues and um, kind of highlight the divides and then talk about where we stand on military spending, um, certain inter- foreign interventions and America's role in the world. But um, Katie, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So. Um, I think this is a good um, time to talk about um, interventionism versus isolationism and the way that um, party opinion and also public opinion has shifted um, in this regard pretty cyclically over the past few years. Um, So today, um, um, more than half of Democrats and um, Democratic leaners um, um, are in support of the country being active in world affairs. Um, But in 2014, the balance was... Uh, reversed. So 58% of Democrats said that the country should focus more on problems at home. And I think this is indicative of a larger shift of opinion um, in terms of interventionism and isolationism um, in the United States. Um, So for 200 years, both public and party opinion have circulated um, uh, between these two. I think it's really easy for the Democratic Party um, 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 and Democratic Party leaners to believe that uh, our party is intrinsically one um, that is um, uh, one that focuses more on problems um, abroad. But this is not necessarily true. Um, It's easy to forget uh, Woodrow Wilson's policies, which were largely those of interventionism. Um, this is also the case um, in 2016. Um, so in, in terms of ideological differences between both parties, um, cooperating with allies, um, Republicans um, um, say the U.S. should consider the interest of al- um, allies. Um, 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 actually, can, can I start over? Do you mind? No, yeah, sure. Okay. Sorry. I think I got a little turned around. Uh, oh, yeah, I get it. 
introduce it. I also because I realized I was saying um a lot, and I like don't. You can we can edit or another thing I do is I also talks just take pauses. Okay, cool. Because people don't mind pauses. Uh, okay. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. My name is Ricky. So, oh, fuck. No, I don't need to say that again. Uh, okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So, right now, we're going to um, cover the the breadth of foreign policy opinions within the Democratic Party as well as where do the visions lie and how they align with um, other ideological or other opinions, maybe separate from foreign policy. So there's clearly divisions on economic policy, social policy, and um, they they align well with divisions within the Democratic Party. But we'll, we'll cover that and then get into some some of the more substantive disagreements between uh, myself. And the other hosts on America's role in the world, um, military spending, etc. But Katie, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So um, I think it's important for us to discuss um, the role of the United States in the world um, in terms of in terms of engagement. Um, so I- interventionism versus isolationism, and shifting opinions um, in regards to that. Um, Today, 56% of Democrats and individuals who lean towards the Democratic Party say it's best that the United States is active in world affairs. Um, But this was different in 2014. Um, The balance has shifted. The balance of Democratic opinion was the reverse, and 58% of people said that the United States should focus more on problems at home. I think this is indicative of a larger shift of opinion that happens nationally um, in terms of interventionism and isolationism. And is indicative of the fact that isolationism and interventionism are not tied directly to party lines. Um, in 2016, um, there was also um, a, a study that discussed ideological differences in both parties in terms of cooperating uh, with allies. So nearly half of liberal Republicans and moderate Republicans say the U.S. should consider the interest of allies, compared with 37% of conservative Republicans. Um, but Democrats... Uh, favor cooperating with allies, um, statistically much higher. 84% of liberals say the U.S. should take allies' interests into account. Um, I don't think that this is insignificant. Um, But we can also move deeper and discuss divisions within the Democratic Party. So solid liberals, which are wealthier, higher educated, predominantly white members um, of the Democratic Party, and opportunity Democrats um, express positive opinions of the U.S. global engagement. Um, But this is not shared throughout the Democratic Party. So Democrats who are disaffected, that means members of the working class, um, individuals um, in the Democratic Party who have a lower college graduation rate and who are also older, are much less likely um, to support um, U.S. global engagement um, and interventionism. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, just for everyone's reference, by the way, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's from... Pew's 2017 political typology report, which is very interesting. You all should take a look at it. If you like uh, opinion polling, it shows like four distinct groups within both the Republican as well as Democratic parties. But yeah, there's definitely um, a divide on on foreign policy issues um, between, I don't want to say like, again, you, you mentioned wealthier, higher educated uh, uh, voters. And I think, I think, I think it's also important to note that the um, the terminology, like 
we were just discussing this before the show, but mm-hmm. the divide it's it's one thing to say isolationist versus interventionist, but there's like I guess I'd say three I don't know. There's multiple strands. You know, you have your isolationists who just want the U.S. out of all world affairs and just really like, um, you know, sticking it out for themselves, ourselves, and whether that's military, militarily, uh, or through diplomacy. Then I think you have like in these solid liberals, opportunity Dems, who are more skeptical of um, of maybe foreign intervention, but are still very uh, willing to to cooperate with the world and take into account our allies' interests when making uh, decisions on foreign policy. And then whereas the, uh, I don't want to say more conservative Dems, but uh, maybe, again, the devout and diverse group as well as the disaffected Dems um, are much more isolationist, um, certainly uh, on on military, uh, military issues. And then you also get that divide amongst the conservatives, which is, you have some that like don't want the again these like oh we don't want to cooperate with anyone else particularly diplomatically um, but we're fine with wielding strong military uh, a strong military presence across the world versus um, your not only not only neocon but like your you know Donald Rumsfelds of the world which are like big you know big on NATO and and building up that alliance but also big on intervention. And um, asserting America's uh, militaristic dominance, I think it's as we transition into this larger discussion, it's important to provide context on just military spending first, so that when we get into the numbers, everyone's not lost. But I, I believe the new military budget is going to be what six hundred and eighty billion dollars. That sounds about right. Yeah, so that's the new one with Trump, but. Um, so the, the the military spending makes up so the U.S. will uh, discretionary spending. There's discretionary spending, which is uh, the def- Department of Defense as as well as all the other branches, really the uh, executive department and Congress, um, which needs to be allocated and uh, you know is is only funded when uh, appropriations bills are passed. And then there's um, non discretionary spending, which is uh, our mandatory spending which is most of our spending, and that constitutes Medicare, Medicaid, um, and Social Security. So that has to be funded no matter what. And as long as we don't hit the debt ceiling, um, we continue to take out debt, even if the government isn't funded. But as a percentage of discretionary spending, the U.S., our our, our military budget, makes up a little bit over half of that. Um, I'm not sure what the current, since we only have like numbers uh, dating back to 2015, that proportion could have changed but uh it it, it only makes up about half of that a little bit over half of the 1.2 trillion dollars or so that we spend uh discretionary you know on discretionary spending and then most of our uh debt is or most of our our, our spending is is mandatory spending so in 2015 uh the 1.11 trillion dollars we spent in discretionary spending was only around 30 percent of the federal budget uh so I, I think that's important context. Um, military spending is below four percent of GDP, I believe, um, or I higher think, than the average rate, but not like in 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 NATO. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, we're higher than NATO, but we're not 
like Saudi Arabia spends, I believe, around 17% of their GDP. There are other countries that have spend more percent of their GDP. Much larger, yeah. On the military. Our number seems really high because our GDP is so yeah, it's large. Our, but, yeah, our nominal yeah, GDP is over $19 trillion, I believe. Um, and then our spending is, it fluctuates between like 3 to $4 trillion. I don't have this year's, the, the new budget's numbers, but um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of money. Uh, but at the same time, the U.S. is a big country and can spend a lot. So with that, I, I mean, um, I mean again, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you guys think about uh, the current levels of military spending, particularly since we've increased them. I don't, I don't know, Noah, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, I do think that we spend far too much on military spending personally. I think that military spending is obviously very important for our defense and for our, the economy in many areas too. I mean it is a form of government stimulus and it does provide jobs. But when we're starting to spend more than the next few countries combined, I think we really need to examine um, how we can be using our resources more efficiently and be using that money that we're spending on the military to be investing in other programs here at home. So I do think that the military is something that should be cut. Interesting. I'd, I'd agree with that. This is Noah Zunker, by the way, just so that we don't confuse the listeners too much. I'd agree with that. Like, I think a, a big problem with our military spending is like we just go over budget because we plan poorly. One of the big spenders that we is in the news in the past couple of years has been the F-35, right? The reason that went so far over budget is because we like produced a bunch of them and then realized that we had through the like the process of engineering and creating the new F-35, we like produce them and then had to update them and then update them again and update them again as we like found more defects within the new system and we just had a another thing that we would mention uh, earlier is like this the f-35 was kind of built and is i think it's all 50 states right it's like there was pieces that were built from all over the country and so like that was an inefficiency in the system as well um the way that the process was was made was inefficient um this is completely like separated from like the relevance of the F-35 to the to the whole like idea of the military, but just like the amount of money that we spent on it was like far over budget because of the process that we used for it, right? And so like I think there's a lot of room for us as uh, the United States to just look at the way that we spend the money within the military and say like, how are we doing this? How are we spending this money? Are we doing it responsibly or are we just saying like, yeah, okay, you're just going to have to spend as much money as you need to accomplish this goal, even though if it may not have, like, a strategic importance or, like, be as effective as you may want to sell it as, you know? And so, like, I don't know if the, regardless of the number that we spend on it, I think there's a there's a lot of room for us to just be more responsible about the way that we spend on the military and, like, take a look at what we're spending, how we're spending it, uh, and making sure that, like, we're not wasting American tax dollars on a helmet that's too heavy because we didn't test it correctly. Sure. Yeah. If anyone has comments about that and I well, can disagree, but I, I mean, I, when you characterize, I mean, so yeah, there are inefficiencies, particularly with bargaining power. And a lot of it is, I mean, there is like chaff that can be cut from it, but at the same time, um, just because it's spread over all 50 States, like sure you can make the, make the, the line of production more efficient. But I mean, an inefficiency, it is a political statement in that that inefficiency does provide jobs. It no, yeah. Stimulus. Um, and that's and it's spreading the wealth. That's another part of it, right? It's like having it in all 50 states makes it politically more sellable, but also like it creates American jobs. Part of the American military 
selling point is like even if we never use it like we used american jobs to create it as long as they're you know american jobs and we don't have someone else to make it for us but like well, we don't use yeah it. yeah it's like we they're don't. creating american jobs as we go along and so that's important to consider as well but go ahead no yeah I, interrupted you. I, I no i just I, I just think it's um i also think it's a false dichotomy uh the 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 idea that like oh we need to cut like look how much we're spending on military our, our military we need to um cut it and divert that to social programs we can spend on both actually I, I, like the money is there i'm not i'm continually perturbed by deficit hawks in the uh the democratic party as well as the republican party that i mean you know the question is how much do they believe it but at the same time there's like a we can spend much more money than than we're spending right now granted we should tax we, we should just have like a massive deficit well, when we spend more money again yeah like you well, said it's, it's, but it's we should only, make sure that we're doing it responsibly it's a misunderstanding of how both the u.s monetary system works as well as the economy to say that oh would you have a household that goes a hundred you know 15 percent in debt um the u.s government you know when you're a household you don't print the the money which you pay back. Like you're not printing the money by which the you give the banker to pay him back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the I'm much more comfortable with modern monetary theory or or discussions like it, which um, or economic thoughts like it, which which highlight the fact that the U.S. controls the money supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we control U.S. dollars. We when we loan or when we give money, when we either spend it or when the Federal Reserve inserts it into the economy, it, uh, you know, like we, we, since we control the function of how, the value both by taxing it as a means to create value and to create scarcity mm-hmm. and demand, um, as well as the insertion of money into the, uh, the economy. Like, it, it's just, it, I, I, I'm, Anyone who is, is super deficit hockey or is, you know, in, in the Democratic Party and, you know, like, oh, the Republicans, like, look at the look at the deficit. We need to stop arguing that the, that the deficit's a problem because we're going to lose the political battle down the line. And there's a reason why uh, Democrats, uh, you know, like are now because they believe so much in integrity and which is good. I mean, I believe I mean, believe in integrity, but like. That we have to fund everything completely. We don't need to fund everything completely. I just, I think I, I think we should when we're funding things that we do, we should make sure that we have a way to fund them, right? And just like looking at it, I don't think, I think there's maybe too much emphasis on the deficit and as as just like a means to just reduce spending and like reduce taxes. Like I think that's kind of the, like the underlying cause for that type of rhetoric. But like, at the same time, we should shouldn't just like spend money and say well we're gonna get the money one way or like maybe we won't but like no, this but is the, important the, the US... I think it's just like a responsible society would say we're gonna find a way to pay for it somehow I, I, and we I shouldn't... mean Japan is at 235% uh, debt to GDP ratio people have been claiming there's gonna be a monetary crisis in Japan for decades saying oh my god the economy's gonna crash the yen's gonna fail it hasn't happened because this isn't how when they create yen and the government spends yen, even if they don't have it, as long as people are still willing to buy the bonds, as long as the debtors still get paid back, it's fine. It's fine. And, and I wouldn't disagree I, with that. I, but the debtors yeah. may lose confidence at a certain point if our debt starts to get so high. I, I'm just – I agree. But I, if Japan can 
can function at 235% of GDP. The U.S. is as the largest, most stable, and uh, most important economy in the world. 25% of global GDP can function for a long time until uh, until de- uh, debtors lose confidence, until bondholders lose confidence. Um, the the overemphasis on on pain, like in, like closing the gap uh, between deficit spending and uh, spending that we actually have money for is simply a function of bondholders and their interests in um, in the United States government. That's that that's how I see it. I don't know. And now we can move on to like perspectives of like what we think the United States should do in the rest of the world with the the money that we're spending on this military or the State Department or just like in general. Would y'all have perspectives on that? Like. Just, like, where you think the United States should go. We already established what we do, but, like, what do we think of where where we should go from here? If y'all have... Yeah, I mean, I think that we have military bases all over the world that are completely unnecessary. They're outdated. We have military bases in Europe that were there because of the Cold War. That's the Cold War is obviously over. I think we should be closing down some of these military bases that are outdated and costly. I think we should be uh, cutting our funding that we've been spending on wars in the Middle East. We've been in Afghanistan now for almost two decades. Um, And I think that we should be investing that money back here at home in infrastructure, in creating more roads and bridges and fixing our damaged highways. I mean, we there's so much money that it could be spent right now on infrastructure. And so I think in addition to 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 cutting our military, which I was saying earlier, I think isn't would be more effective. I think we should also be uh, limiting our funds overseas in military bases and wars in the Middle East. I think uh, <clears throat> to follow up on that, like, what would be your perspective on the U.S. involvement in the world? Because we had made a distinction earlier between like having military bases in like like Latvia or something, and then the difference between like having a a agreement with Latvia to like protect them. Like, where where do you lie on that? Would you say, like, where would you think the United States? Sorry, this is a comp. Like, a, I'm saying this wrong, but like, if we are to pull back from the rest of the world just like militarily and just like spend less where does the role of like the state department or like the united states lie like where does that future lie beyond the money just like where do we go from there so i don't believe that we should be cutting the state department back to the extent that we have been under the trump administration i think that's dangerous to diplomacy Mm -hmm. and i think that we should be continuing to have embassies uh, around the world and fully funding our state department um that's but that's on on the diplomatic side. I think that I'm I was speaking more militarily. Yeah. I think that we should be I think that that having these bases around the world, having these troops stationed is sort of a, a, a sort of a way of sort of saying that we we continue to like have a, a foothold in these places and, and and if needed we will impose our will. And I think we shouldn't be imposing our will on other countries. I think that we should be we should be a, a willing partner. As and, and and frankly, I, I I this may not be a popular view, but I thought that when that when Trump said in his inaugural address, "We'll be a, a a friendly partner to all and impose our will on none," I, I thought he was right about that. I wish he would follow that advice that he laid out in his address because I thought that that was dead on. I I I, I agree that there are some bases that we can close down, um, but at the same time, like I'm very skeptical of pulling out of like bases in the South China Sea. Um, that's an area that 
I think it's in U.S. interests to control um, and to, to exert influence over. I, I am. It's not that the I I am I have a problem with the U.S. being a player instead of the only player on the global scene. I do have a problem though if the U.S. is takes a, a backseat to like someone like China or, and I get it. The U.S. has not had moral clarity in its leadership of the world, particularly in the last few decades. Um, that said, uh, Ch- China does not have more. Does, I, I think the argument that they have more moral clarity, or that they're somehow a a, a, a country that would. Uh, promote the values that, that everyone or that most people would say are good on the international stage more than the United States is is just false. Um, I mean, these are this is a country that continuously cheats uh, by deflating their currency, by um, literally just building islands in the South China Sea, just like literally just building sand islands. Um, and I think it's in our interest to protect, uh, to protect, uh, to, to have a presence in not only in Asia but in other in, in Europe as well, I think we may not need as many troops there, but protecting, asserting NATO and asserting our European uh, the 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 strong relationship that we have with our European allies is not what Trump's been doing. Um, instead, he seems to have this affinity for authoritarian uh, authoritarian leaders. I mean, he he loves Al Sisi in Egypt because of his shoes. Uh, he likes. Uh, you know, he likes the likes of, um, what's his name in the Philippines? Duterte. Yeah, Duterte. Um, he, he's a big fan of uh, MBS as well as uh, the, you know, our relationship with Saudi Arabia. So I, the only way in which he's, he's, you know, thinking about America first is really by um, maybe rhetorically. He's damaged our relationship with, with Europe He's damaged our relationships in uh, Asia, and contra- I mean, he's just simply built up our relationships with with brutal dictators um, in Saudi Arabia, in, in the Philippines, uh, and in areas like that, and has increased uh, support to them while rhetorically and tangibly damaging our allies, our, our relationships with Europe. I don't see him as an America. I don't see him as an actual like non-interventionist. I mean, we've increased troop deployments in Syria. We've mm-hmm. increased our presence in uh, Afghanistan. There was a surge, another surge. So, I mean, uh, I he may be saying, you know, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I believe in this, but that's not what the DOD has been doing. It's, it's just not. Yeah, so I think in this aspect, I tend to be more reflective than, than future-oriented because, you know, I think the moral um, implications or the more ethical questions that Ricky touched on briefly um, are conversations that we don't have um, enough in the West. So I think we, we could discuss um, the term interest um, with more depth, um, the idea that the, the presence of the West and the presence of the United States in the Middle East um, in the 21st century um, and in the past um, is largely tied with um, capitalist expansionism and, and ideas of economic interest for the United States. Mm-hmm. I think this can be juxtaposed with something that uh, Nozunk, you brought up earlier 
um, the lack of action of the United States and Western powers in Rwanda, um, mm-hmm. a small African country with no mir- min- uh, minerals, um, um, a space that is not of strategic value or interest mm-hmm. to the United States. Um, I think it's important for us to be reflective um, uh, of, of this um, um, as a Democratic Party, um, um, yeah, I think largely I'd... because I think it's what's it what it has it it's what has has the ability to set our party apart. Yeah, um, I'd jump off that and just say that like a good foreign policy that I think is just good is like, and the way I'm going to say this is going to sound like I'm an interventionist. I would like an aggressive foreign policy that's focused more on like moral reasons, like being involved in the world and like for moral reasons as well as strategic reasons. I think that the United States should be a leader, not just of the free world, not just of its like of North America, but of the the world that we should take our take our our interests and our morals and our values and just like try and show the rest of the world that those are good things. We shouldn't impose them on other countries, but we should bring those to the forefront, right? And, but I'm not actually, through no. okay, oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to no, no, but not through like military intervention, but like mm-hmm. through st- strategic uh mm-hmm. or through like strategic partnerships, through diplomacy and just being able to like be more involved in the world in ways that are more peaceful and better for yeah. humanity. So I I think I disagree um in the sense that I I think one can engage in multilateralism mm-hmm. in, in um engage in discourse and and nonviolent um 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 I wouldn't say intervention, engagement with the rest of yeah. of the world uh, without imposing values. I think um, um, what was brought up earlier um, about um, um, walking alongside other countries mm-hmm. um, and and um, and the values that they already have in place. Um, if 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 we might say that the United States um, aligns themselves with those values, yeah. Um, is is an important idea, but I do uh, disagree um, of about um, with the idea of um, imposing values. Um, and and I I, I want to uh, uh, step back a little bit and say um, um, clarify that the idea that the United States is acting um, in interest um, is not necessarily um, a negative, um, but but I I do think it's important for us to point um, out. Uh, uh, which 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 moments in history uh, we have gauged? No, yeah, in and that's important. Uh, but Red Lake, did you? Yes, I just want to say I I don't disagree with the idea that we should take moral considerations into account when dealing right. with other countries. But I do think that we have to be realistic. I mean, mm-hmm. we we can't we cannot depose of every dictator in the world who mm-hmm. jails someone wrongly. Mm-hmm. We, we we have to be realistic in our dealings with other countries, and I think that you see in the, you see with Cuba, for example. I mean, the Cuba leaders, uh, the the Castro regime, is certainly not a regime that's friendly to human rights. But I thought it was great when Obama opened up relations with that country. A lot of people said that he's he's he he's helping out dictators. He doesn't care about the suffering of the Cuban people. He's just a, he's a friend of the Castro regime. And I don't think that I don't think that having relations with other countries even if their their government's human rights records may not be perfect is necessarily a bad thing i mean it was the same thing with the with the iranian regime a lot of 
people were saying, we can't sit down with the Iranians. They're human rights abusers. That, that government's a theocratic, repressive government. That may be true, but I think we have to be pragmatic and realize when there's areas where we can work with other countries, like we did with Iran, and we sat down with people, and we worked out a deal, and we got them to, to, to give up their nuclear weapons. I think that sometimes needs to be a path we go on, even if it's not the most idealistic or moralistic in terms of imposing our values on other places. Yeah, I, I, I'm skeptical of also mm-hmm. imposing values, particularly because I don't think the like the core values that the U.S. at least has stood for are necessarily the right values to be leading the world, right? Um, you know, I think there's been other countries which have taken, in Europe, for example, that that have a, a better maybe value set, at least according to the current makeup of the United States and the U.S. Uh, popular opinion, um, than than we've demonstrated. Uh, yeah, I I, I think it, it is it is questionable though. Um, it's a hard decision to like, you know, between like, oh, should we show moral leadership or um, strategic leadership? Uh, it, it's especially it's especially difficult because we'll we'll never be able to like, it's not like we'll just be able to have like a, a moralistic like foreign policy that's just like everything's driven by our values. Like, just, let's just say like we had a unified set of values theoretically. Um, how would I, you know, and that said, any any government that does that violates X Y Z, we we don't we don't cooperate with, or we don't we we don't interact with unless they're willing to capitulate to our said moral value system. Um, I mean, that we've tried things like that, or at least we've tried selectively applying it to certain countries, and I I, I don't see, particularly because of the the stolid nature of American foreign policy and how immovable it can be, um, and except for in times of great crisis or change um the u.s doing a blanket um or a proper application of that uh i just want to interject i when i argue for like bringing in morals to foreign policy i think what i'm what i would try to go at is say that like when we see when we look out into the world and we see things going on right obviously foreign policy is about your strategic interest right and keeping those in place i think that we should just make sure that whenever we go out into the world that we have a question in the back of our mind is this right or is this wrong right like are we making these decisions purely because of strategic interest or like are we doing things that are wrong and that we shouldn't do because we have like this idea that that strategically it would work right i think that would just make it better for us as a country of just like deciding when we go and do something that we're having like a we know that we're doing the right thing or that we think but we like, are. I, that's like, but that gets to like, do you have a utilitarian view or do you have like a, like a, because like you could say, look, there's a thousand people dying right now in X country and we're going to, we're going to invade to protect, prevent this, but the invasion will cause 10,000 deaths, right? Well, some people, you know, there's, there's a reason that like, there's a moral dilemma. It's the same thing with like a moral dilemma with like the train, right? Do you pull the it's, lever? It's acts, of, yes. acts of omission versus acts of co- yeah, commission. Yeah, so, so like there's no unified moral system in the United States. So to, to try to apply a foreign policy based on a, a disunified uh, moral philosophy seems also sketchy. Well, there, there's not a unified moral philosophy, but I think what Sanka's trying to get out is the idea of a moral imperative. And that's kind of... That, that gets to the crux of, of liberal democratic theory, right? Um, because liberals believe that there are moral imperatives in the international system. Would, would you agree? I think this is Do probably, they? I, yeah, this is probably I mean, the central 
division between. Uh, I mean, in terms of liberal the theory versus the 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 ideology of of realism, like realist theory. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you you would, but like, can we even classify like modern like liberal theory considering how? The, I mean, maybe on an elite structure, we can right because there's general mm-hmm. unity amongst elites, but like, in terms of the democratic party. I don't see like a unified, even, even close to unified, uh, understanding of like a moral system, or at least a foreign a foreign policy moral system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I just tend to think that in in terms of foreign policy, sometimes even if we take moral considerations into account, there just won't be a right answer because like there's there's no good options, and so I think that we have to approach a foreign policy sometimes with the op- with the philosophy of that. Acts of commission are worse than acts of omission. That it's worse for us to to actively do something bad than it is to sit by and watch as something bad goes on. And I think that that, that and I think that falls within the moral. I like my the the moral thing would be like would be intervening wrong. Like would intervention be wrong? Like would that just be wrong of us to do? Would that be wrong in that we cause more death? Right. Like those are the moral questions I'm trying to go for. Right. It's not like Again, that's a utilitarian that, view, though, that right? We should, we should. The idea would be like, the United States should be involved in the world and should be a leader for what it stands up for, and make sure that like we don't kind of fade away from the world, not fade away, but just like take a step back and say we don't want to get involved in it. Like, we should be standing up for. Our, that doesn't mean that we're always just going to be the ones who impose our will on other countries. We should be members of an international community, but we should be ones that stand up for. One, our strategic interests, but also two, for just like what's good in the world, right? And I think sometimes we lose that, and it, it'd be important to just make sure that sometimes it, it's Im- important that the United States thinks about what is it doing? Is it good or is it not good? I, I, I agree, but I think that sometimes we lose it not because we don't act enough, but because we act too much in the wrong. No, way. and mm-hmm. I I agree I with think, that. I think we lose it more. From from torturing people in in Guantanamo yeah. mm. than we do from sitting on the sidelines uh, and not intervening in a, yeah. in a place where we should. Like I think that our places where we've actively gone in, like we did in Iran when we deposed their democratically elected government and installed the Shah, <laughs> like yeah. we've done, like we did in Vietnam, yeah. like we did in Iraq, like we did when we set up Guantanamo Bay. I think those things do more to hurt our moral standing in the world than not intervening in a certain situation when maybe it would have been the right thing to do. And, like, you also have this question of, like, um, like, is it better to allow a repressive regime to survive uh, versus, I guess, liberating from a oppressive regime but then creating, A, lots of death and, B, a power vacuum, um, as we did in Iraq, right? And as you, I mean, and I think what Katie's point was was really important as well. Like, there's a reason we're not going in and... Mm-hmm. Helping the Rohingya in Cambodia, right? Um, or not Cambodia. Uh, uh, um, Myanmar. Myanmar. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, like, there's a there's part. I mean, part of the reason is because there's like, oh, we don't have like U.S. companies don't hold like a bunch of land there, and the, you know, this doesn't seem like something that's like on our as our on our priority list, and there's not yeah. radical Buddhists coming to the United States and bombing us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I, I think there's an interesting correlation between the spaces in which the the United States chooses um, chooses as an imperative places to establish democracy because because this is um, uh, this is like a recurring um, um, moment um, in in U.S. foreign policy the idea of establishing democracy I don't I don't think this is disconnected from um, again the appearance of oil um, uh, economic considerations um, I I think the idea of of, of connecting capital capitalistic values between two countries um, um, is is oftentimes correlated with the establishment of democracy and I, I in think, spaces outside yeah, of the West I think just to kind of like a final point of discussion is we definitely I mean it's very clear that we don't apply the same standards to countries um, we can use I mean Israel is an example right uh, in Israel there's a uh, for those that don't know the background, there's occupied territories that are occupied because there was an assault on Israel, uh, a military assault uh, by Egypt and a couple other allied countries around uh, around Israel, Muslim allied countries around Israel. And um, there's currently occupied Palestinian territory and, uh, you know, Palestinians, uh, they, they don't, they don't, whether they're Christian or uh, Muslim, don't have voting rights in Israel they aren't uh, considered citizens technically it's a uh, it's an occupied territory but Jew, uh, Jewish settlers in occupied territories are judged by uh, Israeli civil law and then um, in other countries where either voting rights or, or, or uh, rights to speech or whatever you may have are violated um, the US does not take the same the same uh, approach and that that's a stark contrast, just because of um, the history of Israel, uh, the Israeli relations with the United States, as well as um, this weird push you have from evangelical Christians that think once Jewish people build the new temple, that like Jesus is going to come again. But like, aside from that, like really strange um, aberration from like Christian orthodoxy, uh, you have uh, a lot of other factors that bolster the U.S. relationship with Israel. So, I mean, um, it, it's not something that we apply uniformly, not only because of strategic interests, but because of opinions of certain Americans, right? There's a strong tie, uh, both with the American Jewish community, which is the largest in the world, I think. Is it, lar- is it larger than Israel's? I don't think it is, but... The, is the Jewish community in Israel? In the United States. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's the largest in the world, I yes. think. Certainly outside of Israel. Um, it... I think it might be larger than Israel's. Um, and then also, again, born-again Christians, uh, as as opposed to maybe a another uh, regime that's conducting something undemocratically um, or conducting their, their elections in an undemocratic way. We might ha- have a, a heavier hand with them. But I, I think with all that in mind, uh, we can wrap it up here and... I mean, it's this is a discussion that continues in the Democratic Party. I think will be evident in the 2020 primaries. Um, it'll probably, I mean, won't probably take the front seat, considering healthcare is the issue on everyone's mind, at least according to polling. Uh, it's the most pressing issue in the United States, and then the economy. But um, I think there'll be room for divides within the Democratic Party, as there was during uh, the 2016 uh, primary but also during this one as well. 
um, on foreign policy and America's role in the world. But thanks everyone for uh, tuning in. Um, our next episode is it, I believe it's either trade or labor. I think it's trade, uh, free trade. So that's another contentious topic within the Democratic Party. But you can find us on Twitter at Harvard Dems, or you can find us on Facebook at Harvard College Democrats. Uh, again, like, uh, give us five stars, subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes. Um, we should have our YouTube channel up and running too, so you can find us there. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in, and we hope you join us next time.